Okay, hey guys, it has been a while. Uh, life has been very busy as of late, so I haven't had much free time to like do what I want to do and cover the material that I thought, or cover the material that I want to cover. But you know what, that's okay, because you know, life happens and I love all of you who listen. And um, we have a guest. We're gonna be talking about something that has been on my mind nonstop for the past month. So I would like to introduce a good friend of mine, Clay. Hello. How are you doing today? Kind of like you said, over the past month, like, well, really six, since October 7th, this topic has been unable to leave my mind in plethora of very distressing ways. I've been living my life and it feels wrong. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, it's almost like you go to work, you clock in and you sit down and like, for at least for me, it's like organizing volunteer, volunteering trips. But like in the back of my mind, I can't help but think like, oh my God, like, like there's genocide going on right now. Which, we're gonna get to that. Uh, I wanted you to first kind of introduce yourself, talk about, you know, how we met and like what you do, who you are. Clay Robinson, I am a student at the University of Florida. I'm a senior. Uh, I study political science. Um, I'm uh, Jewish American and I, I suppose among people at my uh, university, I would be notable for being a very vocal anti-Zionist or uh, Israeli critical. So uh, I just hope uh, through this discussion to share some insight on that. The, the way me and Shai met was originally through uh, study abroad in Argentina. We first linked because our last names are like about one letter off and we uh, made some jokes about that. But then after that I quickly learned that Shai was a really cool and really engaged person in all the ways that matter. Aww. So um, I'm just really happy to be chatting with you. It's, it's super cool that we were still able to like keep in touch because you know like it's, it's a unique experience but like not all experiences last, right? You know we're gonna be talking about uh, what is happening in Israel because again like this is you know it hits home I feel for I think I can say that for for Clay and it also just has been hitting home for me as well in you know transitioning into this I started to think about you know how little I knew about Palestine how little I knew about Israel and honestly just Middle Eastern history I was literally talking with someone the other day and they were like I'm having such a hard time understanding this because I don't understand the geography of the region and I'm just like okay okay you know, I was unsure as to how to begin talking about this. I think it's obvious that I'm not I'm not a historian, I'm not Arab or, you know, Palestinian myself. And so my knowledge isn't gonna be as extensive as people who have, you know, spent their, their careers, their lives talking about this and advocating for justice in this region. And, you know, I don't think someone has to be an expert on something to understand the morality of a situation. And so I decided to take it upon myself to learn more. And so Clay, I know that we share a lot of similar beliefs. And so I assume that you knew a lot more about this than I did. And I think the focus of this episode should be to learn more about the terms that have been quote unquote, like thrown around uh, to explore whether or not they apply to what is happening in Gaza and the West Bank. And so Clay, you had mentioned that you're, you know, you're a strong anti-Zionist. Yeah, evidently I am not a doctorate. I am not an expert in any of these fields. I have just uh, intentionally kind of studied them and grew up within particularly like a uh, Jewish community. Uh, so I've always kind of had this like knowledge of what broadly is going on with Israel since I was since I've just grown up. It's part of like the cultural meta narrative, being Jewish to be familiar with Israel to some extent. Most of my experience and knowledge uh, about the more specific factual piece of information come from a series of courses I took at the University of Florida. I know this is not a popular belief in my community and I want to come to understand the points of view of my community and where this came from and more about the more about this topic. So if I, so I could challenge my own belief or if I were to become stronger in it, I want to be able to defend myself and actually put up like a reasonable point of view. At large, to my knowledge, Zionism is a ideology that was originally born out of like East Europe, uh, East European Jewish communities. 
From around uh, mid to late 1800s, uh, there was this mobilization towards the development of ethno states, such as like France, Germany, uh, I think like Austria, Hungary. Um, however, as a lot of people attempted to kind of adopt to this ethno state model and find their place in it, a lot of Jewish people eventually would go on to become part of the national identity that there was. They wanted to be a French Jewish person. However, there was a lot of pushback about this, and I believe if, um, the Dreyfus Affair in France eventually led Theodore Herschel, the like historical founder of Israel. He, um, after attempting to kind of assimilate and become a, a Jew of a European nation, he saw that instance, I believe it was that instance, or just the rising anti-Semitism across Europe, and was like, wow, we will never be accepted. We must have our own state to place us and protect us on this equal standing as people like in Europe are. So that's where the idea of Zionism was born. It was a rejection to the religious hierarchy that had already existed as they had understand the, or the ultra-Orthodox and the Orthodox across Europe as not having been successful in protecting Jewish interests. So this group of highly secular communists, largely communists, Jewish people from Eastern Europe would eventually go to begin the uh, what I would refer to as the colonial, settler colonial roots of contemporary Israel. And, and I've heard a, a lot of people say, well, they're not settlers, they're not colonists, but at this point in time, which is about the early uh, 1890s, there was about, I believe it was uh, between a four and eight percent of the population of what today is uh, like Israel-Palestine um, in that group area were Jewish. However, they were largely what we would today refer to as ultra-Orthodox and coming from a perspective that was like, they did not support the establishment of a Jewish state because they believed only God could bring a Jewish state. So those people were not even in agreement with the secular Zionists who were coming in to develop their own kibbutzes as well as communities in different parts, parts of this land. I mean, you hit the head on the nail of every single thing that I kind of, that I had researched, right? So can you explain to me the difference, if you know, like the difference between Orthodox Jews, um, what, what is that and how they are in contrast to liberal Jews, I guess? Judaism at large kind of falls into today broadly like four or five categories being um, secular Jews at large like to different degrees of religious in the same way that a Christian in America would like celebrate Christmas, go to an Easter event, but they may not even believe in a God. Uh, that's uh, a substantial portion of today's global Jewish community, particularly in the United States. They're largely reform. Uh, in the next group, you have conservative Jewish people. This doesn't really exist in Israel. This is primarily an American thing. Uh, and they're probably the third largest group uh, of Jewish people and have a little bit more of a historical interwoven with religious interpretation. And then you have the Orthodox and then the ultra-Orthodox. Uh, the Orthodox uh, and the ultra-Orthodox largely branch out on the, on the main topic being the existence of a Jewish state in that the, to my knowledge, uh, but at large, the ultra-Orthodox, they don't believe in the existence of a Jewish state. It has to be brought about by God. So they don't really at large support Israel and they make about 10% of the Israeli population. The Orthodox who are the, the other part of that equation, this ideology of Orthodox Judaism is kind of born out of the 1800s in East Europe. Uh, and these people at large are going to be very religious and they make up about half. I feel like this is gonna like jump ahead really quickly, but like what role do you think that Zionism has played in mitigating or aggregating the Palestinian-Israeli relationship? I think today definitely defines it. I don't think there would be uh, kind of, well, going back to the 1890s, prior to the beginning of the colonial project uh, of Zionists in Israel, there did exist a Jewish population in Palestine and they were Jewish Palestinians. They were the ultra-Orthodox. There was a very limited amount of violence, intercommunal violence, as they all lived under the Ottoman Empire and like all kind of lived autonomously until the last few years of the Ottoman Empire. And there was not this great religious struggle because these communities had lived interwoven for uh, hundreds of years at this point. Um, it was not until Zionists began to 
bring the settlement and foundation of new villages across Israel following the First World War when Britain began to take hold. Like they, they would buy this land from the British and then begin to settle it. And this is prior to even the foundation of Israel. And in some cases, prior to the Balfour Declaration, you begin to see these early tensions begin to rise because, uh, quote unquote, legally, the dominance of the British Empire allowed them just to sell this land because it was, quote unquote, their land, even though they, in some cases, had never even been Zionist settlers who would then take the, the, uh, the people, the indigenous people off this land, the indigenous Palestinians, and begin to work and cultivate their own communities. And I believe that is a lot of the origin of this tension because that movement would eventually result in the Jewish population of Palestine, but going from that 8% who had been there for a very long time, for hundreds of years, and did not have these uh, intercommunal problems, to being about 30% of the population with incredibly tense conflicts. It, when you look back at a lot of Herzl's early works where he began to like look at the lands, in his writings, he fails to mention the presence of many Arab Palestinians across most of this land. However, the people he was with would write extensively upon about that fact. Uh, but Herzl, uh, who I would argue is a Jewish supremacist, and to a certain degree a white supremacist, because I believe his neglect of the recognition of these peoples led him to just completely ignore the presence of these people and their interests and take them off their land uh, through the foundation of these communities in the attempt to establish new one. And I think it's kind of this core issue, because when you have that tension from the years prior where you were already uh, removing people from their land um, through legalistic means, ignoring the like the fact that they've been there for hundreds of years, that is a tension that is, won't go away until it is reconciled with. You said he was a Jewish supremacist. Uh, I found a quote that like his justification for leading the Zionists to create a Jewish state was he basically said, and I quote, if it is God's will that we return to our historic fatherland, we should like to do so as representatives of Western civilization and bring cleanliness, order, and well-established customs to this plague-ridden, blighted corner of the Orient. Which, that is like really bad language to be openly saying about this. Because it gets into like, you know, like what is the Orient? He's obviously referring to Palestine at the time. And then, you know, he said something about cleaning and uh, we, we know that that's a euphemism within uh, genocidal rhetoric, um, which we're gonna talk about later. But I wanted to transition into, you know, from Zionism. Well, first of all, all these terms, like not everybody knows what they are. And so I was uh, looking at who Arabs are and it comes from like uh, Arabic speaking ethnic and national groups originally from uh, the Arabian Peninsula, meaning, you know, Saudi Arabia, United Arab uh, Emirates, uh, Oman, Yemen, you know, basically people living in Southwest Asia, North Africa transitioning into you know the language and you know like what is ethnic cleansing because that is kind of that is what is happening here that is what is being described yeah i, I would uh, not disagree with that at all i understand that some people are hesitant to even when speaking to members of my family they're like come on this isn't genocide this isn't ethnic cleansing uh but i think when I, when I refer to it as ethnic cleansing i mean you are looking at the village that exists there it is a village of palestinian people when they're approached by zionist settlers and the, and the military with weapons and they're telling them to leave that village they are no longer allowed to be there and forced to go to another village that they do not live in uh, or reside in at a new Jewish settlement uh, for the Israeli government is built in that land that's very just very simply ethnic cleansing it's not a it's not a welcome uh, shift and it is not a shift that is happening with any regard to the people who currently live on. and it is, it is done by them. 
a hundred percent i again for each of these terms i looked up the definition and you know the formal definition is the systematic elimination of an ethnic group or groups from a region or society definitely you hit on the forced immigration um but also like the mass expulsion and killing of one ethnic or religious group in an area by another and I think it's important to provide some context that, you know, the United Nations, they first defined genocide in 1948 in um, the Convention of the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. You know, the treaty outlines basically uh, like five acts that can constitute genocide if they are done with the intent to destroy an ethnic, national, racial, or religious group. And these are like the direct words from uh, the website. Um, but here we go. So we have killing members of the group causing serious uh, bodily or mental harm, imposing measures intended to prevent births, uh, and forcibly transferring children. And so they, they, they really emphasize that in order to qualify this as genocide, um, the actions must be done with the intent to eliminate an entire group of people. Uh, where is that maybe legal, legal definition of the word genocide? Genocide itself being genos is the uh, ethnic group of people, like an ethnic people or race, and side being the mass uh, killing. And in this, I feel like it's almost hard to argue that you do not see that, particularly in this over this since October seventh, whereas that tragedy was terrible. I it cannot permit a genocide, and I call it that specifically because right now you've been seeing the murder at a rate of 333 people, uh, uh, roughly on average per day. If you keep this up for the rest of the year, that is 120,000 people, uh, and I've heard some people, even in my family, uh, horrifyingly say, "Come on, this is not a genocide," but when one of the things I found in looking into historical genocides in order to kind of understand whether or not this word is appropriate, a genocide is uh, understood to happen is, or the severity of it is understood through what is referred to as the kill rate, which is the number of people killed per day. And larger genocides such as the Holocaust, Rwandan genocide and the Armenian genocide saw like multitudes of more people killed per day. A lot of other uh, mass killings that we've seen throughout history that people do recognize as genocides, such as the Bosnian genocide, this there's a higher rate of civilian death every day right now than there was then. And I feel like if you can recognize that as a genocide, it should be very easy to recognize this as a genocide, particularly when the people are largely, to some, to some degree, unable to leave, or when they leave, they're being permanently forced from their land. The Genocide Education Project outlines the 10 stages of this. So if there is segregation, there's more like, like it means you're more likely to have a genocide. The second stage is symbol, uh, symbolization. And so this is like giving names or other symbols to classify race, ethnicity, religion, or nationality, uh, distinguishing by colors or dress and applying that to a member of a group. Yeah, so there are four different forms of verification that are extremely riddled with uh, like upward mobility difficulties. Um, there are also different license plates for Palestinians with different colors. And so the third stage is discrimination, which is a dominant group uses law, custom, and political power to deny the rights of other groups. And by the way, for my listeners, I'm going to include all of these sources in a separate document. You, I highly encourage you to go look for yourself to read like what I read. But in 2018, there was like a declaration that said, quote, the right to national self-determination in the state of Israel is unique to Jewish people. And end quote. And they also had a nation state law that talked about this, like the un, uh, unequal terms between the two groups. And then when it was challenged, I'm pretty sure it was challenged, but it was challenged, but then it was rejected because, quote, it changed the fundamental nature of the bill for rights for Jews to be equal in rights for Palestinians. Something that I've really found that's very upsetting for me personally when learning about, particularly I took this Israeli philosophy class, and one of the contemporary arguments that is at the core root of Israel is whether Israel is going to be democratic 
or Israel is going to be Jewish. I find it very scary because of the fact that when, once you move from having a democratic state and democracy being the the key figure and element of it, you allow another people to face a certain level of persecution at the cost of maintaining that uh, identity. And I think to a certain degree, whereas you may have this presence of Arab Palestinians uh, or Arab Israelis living as citizens of Israel, when the state, when the Israeli government put, institutes military uh, law in times of that, uh, crisis and these people are the ones who systematically have their rights stripped away, I think it's hard to say that Israel, to some degree, to some degree at least, is democratic. It is inherently not democratic. The basic law of 1958 that I had seen on a, in a YouTube video, it basically stated that like any political candidate can be disqualified for the negation of the existence of the state of Israel as the state of the Jewish people, the negation of the democratic character of the state, and incitement to racism. And like, especially when you also tie in the different access to government when it comes to Palestinians and their different classifications. But another thing that like I wanted to bring to attention that I found, which was like extremely concerning to me in the United States, like looking at this from a US perspective, it's against the law to like boycott, to boycott Israel, right? Oh, no, uh, depending on the state, uh, you can face different levels of punishment uh, in your attempts to boycott Israel. And that comes as a reaction to the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement. Oh, earlier this year, the Supreme Court let stand an Arkansas law that penalized boycotts of Israel. So like, and this is insane. And another thing that I want to bring up is that these laws are pushed by lobbying groups, I would say. But specifically APAC, which is the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, and also ALEC, or ALEC, which is the American Legislative uh, Exchange Council, both are which I would argue, I mean, the latter definitely is a right-wing group, um, but they push for states to adopt laws to protect U.S. businesses from political boycotts. And when you're trying to criminalize that, like, you have to ask yourself, like, is this a democracy? Like, are, are we having democratic principles? We're still on the topic of genocide. And the fourth one is dehumanization. Terrorists is a common word to use to describe the victims in this case. And I recently watched this YouTube video of a reporter who was like talking with uh, some like Jewish Israeli citizens, I'm pretty sure, and how they kind of feel towards Palestinians, uh, but Arabs more generally. And I don't want to generalize because I, I, I am a firm believer that not every single Jewish Israeli person believes this, but like, it's like, it's, it's crazy. Like they're saying like Islam is an illness, death to Arabs, they call them barbaric, animalistic, they call them rapists and human shields. Like people say like what is happening right now is divine retribution for, you know, uh, their ancestors being pushed out of Jerusalem. And it's just a gross demonstration of like the complete dehumanization of Arabs and uh, Palestinians. There's polarization where extremists drive the groups apart. And I really want to bring up uh, the extreme right-wing government of Israel in terms of polarization. I Don't worry, I have so many thoughts on Benjamin Netanyahu. I think Bibi is probably one of the most dangerous and disgusting people that exist in contemporary politics uh, in the Middle East uh, or the world at large. Um, just down to the fact that like there's been so many corruption charges that have been proven uh, to be factual levied at him and his son. Uh, but Likud, Likud uh, at large has, which is the more one of the more conservative parties in the Israeli government, and, and uh, regularly uh, forms governments with the even more farther right religious or highly militaristic secular parties. Uh, but Likud is usually the dominant one. I believe right now they have 40 seats in the Knesset, which is about a third. Um, they're as of now the largest party. Uh, and since Benjamin Netanyahu has been the leader since roughly the early 90s. Um, 
they have been a very uh, one, pro one state solution, one Jewish state solution, uh, with limited rights or recognition of Palestinian uh, presence or existence. It's very scary to see this development happening, particularly, but, and I think a lot of it comes due to the historical setting of the situation, as well as the children in Israel are kind of growing up. They are introduced to religious ideal, ideas that more directly are almost a form of religious supremacy that is taught through schools due to their access to that. And I will say, uh, Itmar bin Gavir, who is the Minister of National Security, has not been, uh, he has not hidden his racism against Palestinians. Um, he literally even said there's no such thing as Palestinians. He was deemed a fascist. He wants Israel and Palestinian territories to be rid of Palestinians. In 2007, he was convicted of incitement of racism and alignment with a terrorist organization. There was one video that I had seen in 2021 where he like pulled out a gun and started threatening Palestinian protesters in Eastern Jerusalem. And you know, we'll see this even more, the role of the, the government uh, and the, the maneuvers that they use to you know perpetuate injustice. But okay, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna wrap up really quick. Um, national or perpetrator group leads the final solution which the final solution i had found out about the jewish question which was like a very sickening and dehumanizing anti-semitic movement and then upon reading more about it i found that the nazis presented the final solution to the jewish question which was the holocaust like i think like that's that's that is just such an insane conception like i had no idea um and another big thing within this uh, the preparation stage as well is, is you know, if, they, if we don't kill them, they will kill us, quote unquote, um, which I think is just wrong. And then number nine, or number eight is persecution. Number nine is extermination, which is the mass killing legally called genocide. And then 10 is denial um, and trying to cover up the evidence and uh, yeah, denial of committing crimes and blaming the victims. Another part of the victimization, and I think it's like very frustrating um, to think about some of the counter arguments that we've already talked about, you know, like, but even like Fox News, they, they're comparing the support yeah. for Palestinians to supporting the martyr, like the, the martyrs who did 9-11. And, you know, they're saying that people who protest are supporting mass murder. Yeah, a topic in this kind of overall discussion that has become a very alarming to me, particularly recently, and I've seen it for a while, is Obviously, every as a Jewish person, every Jewish person feels the pain of the Holocaust. You go to the Holocaust museums and you get and you see your history there, and it is very horrible. However, a lot of people try to equate anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism, but I would argue it's not anti-Semitic to be cr critical of the Jewish state. I'm I'm particularly of the opinion, uh, specifically, that it is almost anti-Semitic to not be equally critical of the Israeli state when it has the same flaws. Because by doing that, then you give, then you treat Jewish people differently and the Israeli state differently. I, I just want to come out this with uh, with the perspective that being from the Jewish community, it's there is this deep, deep fear in the collective Jewish psyche of another Holocaust. Because at large, that has kind of been our history. Even before the uh, the Holocaust by the Germans, there were pogroms across Europe, and so they understand it to be like okay, uh, like. Even, even the words of some of my direct family members who are otherwise like well thought out people, they get so scared that they are driven to blindly accept the Israeli position because they just hear that October 7th was the deadliest day in Jewish history since the Holocaust. And it was, and that's awful, but that cannot then be allowed to permit this violence enacted on other people. It's, it's not a hatred of another people. It is a fear that is so intense that has been brought out to be violent 
I'm very happy that you bring up this point. The fact that, you know, like the history of Jewish people has been so, so perpetually like the, them being targeted. You can understand the context in which people are forming these opinions and so pro-Israel, like as a state, because it is that sense of like safety and security. But like, as you said, the safety and security of one group should not come at the extent or the cost of another group, which I think is like very important. It's it, violence begets violence. I'm pretty sure that's how, how the uh, phrase goes. And now I wanted to give you a chance to, to talk about apartheid. And what's your conception of apartheid? The argument has been made that you're misusing the word apartheid when we talk about, you know, what is happening in Israel. Gotcha. Well, um, ironically enough, I, to a certain extent, also sadly come uh, from a family heritage where my family were like British South Africans. Uh, and my mom is like a first generation American. <laughs> Um, so I do have a little bit of familiarity with like historic and contemporary South Africa. Uh, they left in part because they wanted to no longer support the apartheid state. Connecting it back to the topic of Israel and Palestine, I think there's a, when people who here say that's not apartheid, largely they're just thinking about Arab Israelis and Arab citizens of the state of Israel, Gazans and people in the West Bank. Hamas governs Gaza and, the, and Fatah, which is, which is the other uh, major group, runs the West Bank. However, I, I think it's important to consider the fact that Israel has de facto control over the Gulf. They may be a government per se, but they don't really represent anything. And they haven't had elections in a very long time. And when your water, electricity, territory, defense, uh, and like justice is all determined by a foreign state, people who do call it apartheid are like, you have to recognize the fact that all these people are not subject to their own government. They're subject to the government of Israel, therefore putting them under its control. So to not include them, given the fact that Israel has total control over the territory, I think is a little bit ignorant and disingenuous. They classified what was happening in Israel as apartheid in 2021, um, based on the 1973 apartheid convention and the 1978 Rome statute. And I think when you had first originally talked about the Israeli blockade in Gaza, everything that you said, like they're not, they're unable to move freely, um, even like materials and resources aren't able to move freely without uh, the Israeli government. Like I saw that they haven't been able to get, they don't have clean water, but they can't even make, they can't even have cement to, you know, come in to build water facilities um, without a permit. And then you have West Bank Palestinians who have no freedom of movement essentially because of the checkpoints. The government forbids interracial marriage. There's also the second kind of facet of apartheid, the systemic oppression of one group over another. 1948, massive displacement of 700,000 Palestinians, which was, you know, coined the Nakba. Um, and, and to this day, they are not allowed to return to Israel. I'm pretty sure that's like explicitly stated in, in their law. The last kind of facet of apartheid is inhumane acts. Uh, so, you know, Palestinians, uh, they're overcrowded and surrounded by Israeli settler communities. Again, uh, Israel's been com committing many crimes under international law, forcible transfer, administrative detention and torture, unlawful killings and serious injuries, and denial of basic freedoms. Um, but I wanted to bring up, you said that, this is a good point, like this is a counter that I hear often, but people say, but Palestinians can vote. Um, and so what's your perception of that? Particularly in relation to this current conflict, people will argue, but they voted for Hamas. The people living there today did not vote for Hamas. That last election was 2006, and only and they and Hamas's group received 45% of the vote. However, the last election being in 2006 means that 67% of people currently living in Gaza were eight or younger. Not even that. So, and I'm sure if you size that up to people who could vote at that time, the population percentage is probably a quarter or less of people currently living there. 
uh, would have participated in that election. And only half of them voted for Hamas. So to then say that these people chose Hamas is so ignorant, but it cannot be understood as anything other than just an attempt to dehumanize them further to accept violence against these civilians. When it comes down to it, the, the origin of the violence began with the Israeli colonization of Palestine from 1890 until the uh, until I would say until our uh, contemporary day. It's important to note that people that there was there was a incredibly strong political connection between the apartheid government of South Africa and the government of Israel. When they when the apartheid government of uh, South Africa existed, they were strong allies of Israel. Uh, and even Nelson Mandela was incredibly critical of the state of Israel because of their treatment of, um, of Palestinian people and their uh, deprivation of their rights. I think the power dynamic is important to realize always between uh, a colonizer and the colonized because it's not it's it's painted as an equal battle, um, especially in the case of Hamas. But I can understand why people point out the fact that Hamas is in response to the continual violence that Palestinians have just like faced over over time. And I don't see I don't see that that's like a justification for their creation nor the actions that they have taken uh, and the violence that they have taken against civilians because I'm always going to care about civilians. But I had heard about like even US intervention in Israeli in uh, Israeli support for Hamas before uh, they they became and they came into power. So I, did you know anything about that? Um, not until really recently, but yeah, I, I, like when I mentioned that to family members, they, they had no clue what I was talking about. Yeah, I previously didn't either. What I found out is prior to the official establishment of what is contemporary Hamas, uh, one famous religious cleric who was, a, who was more of a religious extremist uh, began to set up what was originally a charity, uh, then a, a, a continued to evolve into this organization. Uh, that was uh, receiving a lot of money from Israel uh, in order to like fund the construction of like like mosques and things like that. However, the problem goes where it was already known he was a religious extremist and a hardcore far-right Islamist. I believe his name is Sheikh Yassin, Yassin uh, and he was arrested and sentenced to 12 years in jail. He was freed after only one year in jail and was continually pr uh, provided uh, financial resources and continued to build the stockpile. They purchased these resources even after talking about the uh, capacity for building up that, that violence. And I feel like this is even further supported by a lot of statements you hear out of people specifically like the current Prime Minister, Bibi Netanyahu, who even going back to the 90s has argued in, in, that in order to have a successful campaign to fully uh, ethnically cleanse the area and create a one Jewish state, you need a far right-wing Islamist group there because Islamic extremism has been a problem for many other countries, such as the United States. So when you could say, look at this Islamic extremism, we have to go get rid of them regardless of the, of the cost, uh, it's a lot easier for them to get for them to get that support on the international level uh, than it would be if it was the PLO, a largely secular and largely just like pro-Palestinian uh, rights and independence movement. One thing that I wanted to bring up is this phrase, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. I saw that a policy in place in Israel since 2002 has been to deny Palestinians the right of return. This is why people say, you know, from the river to the sea, because they're not able to access that land. Like, they're not able to go there. Do you think that this phrase is a call for genocide against Jewish settlers? Because again, you know, this it's especially related to the 1948 Nakba and the fact that over 5 million Palestinians have been exiled and unable to return. I think there's been a strong propaganda campaign to intentionally interpret it amongst particularly Islamophobic uh, media outlets as being specifically genocidal. 
Uh, as its history is a little bit unknown, we do know that the origin began to early on emerge through just Palestinian liberation groups, because at that point, there was not this like large Jewish state that had been existing for 70 years. There was effectively this like new colony that had been put on your land for about 20 years. So when you say that, you're asking for colonists to be just kind of cast away. Uh, and their colonial state to be cast away. Uh, I think it's important to clarify that today, I don't believe that's just not a feasible thing to do. People, I think people like misconstrue or misremember the fact that like there were peaceful efforts and strides trying to be made that were just constantly disregarded time and time again. Um, mm -hmm. I, 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 from the people who are pro-Israel, I do often hear a lot of like, the, the, the Arab people were offered their own state for years and years and years and years and years and, years and they kept saying no. And then you also hear other people say there's like X amount of uh, Arab states, but only one Jewish one. But when it comes down to it, that those points don't really matter because when it because uh, when it comes down to it, what what the problem is the fact that most of the Jewish state that exists requires over 700,000 people to be kicked off their land, and over 100,000 have died in that process, with millions being forced from the from the land that their parents and grandparents grew up on. So for them, it is not this crazy idea to want to return to that land and see the, the borders of Israel uh, receded substantially. And I also don't think that's completely a ridiculous thing to say today. You know, when we talk about governments in these kinds of regimes, the last term that I wanted to discuss was fascism, because we do hear this, I mean, I at least have heard this um, word come up. You know, people say that Zionism is fascism. Um, I think today it's, it's hard not to say that Israel, I don't know if fascist is particularly the right term, because specifically just because it, it also denotes a certain level of economic organization as well. But I, I think it's possible to say that Israel uh, has a lot of fascist traits and a lot of fascist people in government, even if the whole government itself is not a fascist state. It's undeniably oppressive, uh, unequal, uh, and like incredibly violent state. But I just personally just don't know if the term fascist specifically applies that well. Uh, but I would argue that many people in the government today, particularly the ruling parties, have a lot of people who are fascists. I'm forgetting his name at the one point, but this one uh, is member of Israeli government, he's a minister of finance, he said, and I quote, I'm a fascist, I'm a racist, I'm a homophobe, but I'm a man of my word. And I what? think someone, it, it's, when you see government saying things like that, you should in the very least take a pause to be like, okay, if those are the people in charge and they're enacting such violence, maybe I need to push myself back and see, this is not just a anti-Semitic attack and a, re a retaliation for security. This is a violent, oppressive, offensive state. That is... I I had no idea that someone that uh, the the minister of finance said that directly. Like, how can you like the the first of all the freedom to just w openly say that and have no consequences? I remember like I've been seeing you've been posting information on Instagram, and I saw one of the posts. It was about uh, like the different things that they have been that has been said most recently. And I saw one quote uh, that was like the the children of Gaza have brought this upon themselves. It's like how <laughs> like what? And in terms of fascism. So I looked at the definition, and it's a, it's a system of government marked by centralization of authority under a dictator, a capitalist economy subject to stringent uh, government controls, uh, the violent suppression of, of the opposition, and typically a policy of belligerent nationalism and racism. From from what we have talked about, it seems like maybe you know Israel could be considered fascist. I don't know if people call Netanyahu a dictator, um, but I do know um, that. What's up? Sorry, uh, I would argue that they're 
that if they are fascist, if this, if like opposing members of government being fascist, the government itself being a fascist state, I think if that is true, it would be true as particularly over the last couple of years because you see the centralization of power and the disregarding of the court system uh, by the Likud party. And I think there's that's what where even prior to this incident, there was actually almost there was like some of the most violent internal tensions between uh, religious and secular Israelis uh, in the history of Israel for at least I think like the last like 40, 50 years because of this rising fascist state. There is centralized power. You know, I would say they are operating under capitalist constructs. I don't necessarily know the extent to which the capitalist constructs are as involved. I would definitely agree. I don't think you'd be seeing as much military and government support, particularly when it's so unpopular amongst the American people. Uh, if it weren't for the fact that they believe that there's a lot of oil under the seas near Gaza and a lot of economic opportunity uh, for American companies that are strongly aligned with Israel. And, and weapons manufacturers in general. That's another aspect of the BDS movement is, you know, divesting from businesses that basically contribute to the military industrialized complex of, you know, our, our, our government. And I, and I genuinely don't like the fact that this is how we generate revenue. Like when I look to see, first of all, that we've been giving Israel like $3 billion since what was it like the early 2000s and military defense policing in general, um, the military in general, it's just, it's very, it's very concerning for me, especially because you do point out a really crucial part of democracy is the fact that people are calling for ceasefires, but we are seeing our wants disregarded. And so I've been looking at things from an economic perspective and I'm thinking, well, yeah, it's not within an economic interest to listen to people who don't want to, you know, engage in this, in this conflict when there are economic incentives to do so. So those were the, the terms that I wanted to go over. We've talked about a bunch of information. So like, do you think that the context is needed from a thousand years ago to provide like an understanding of where we are today. I would say it's never bad to have more information and more context, given that we were a people in diaspora for hundreds of years longer than a Jewish state existed ever there, historically and contemporarily. If you really want uh, to be as educated as possible, go as far back as possible. But to get an understanding of the contemporary problem, I would argue it begins in about 1880. Do you think this is a complicated situation? No, and I, I, I think it's funny that you bring that up. I kind of I kind of hate when people say that uh, because it's complicated, but it's complicated in the same way that the American colonization of the North Americas was, uh, was complicated. When you want to get into the details and get specific, sure, but you don't really need to get all the details to look at it from an outside perspective to see at least very specifically today that it is unacceptable to be killing children uh, at the rate that's happening and killing civilians at the rate that's happening. I don't think you need that much context to understand when 800, over 800 scholars from across the world who are scholars of genocide are signing a document saying this is a, a slow or beginning genocide to recognize that that is a valid way to describe this. When Israel, more than any other country on an international scale, has received uh, condemnation for the treatment of Palestinians, I don't think that that's very complicated. But I think far too often the term it's complicated is a way to just like to allow, to allow people who don't want to get into the details to avert their eyes to a certain extent. And what do you think the best way is to talk about what is happening? To have direct open conversations about it. I think it's particularly with as much information as possible, bringing it forward to each other. Come at it with an open heart and mind, but don't be afraid of the conversation and be willing to address the, like, the obvious facts to the situation that you don't get to retaliate against effectively an open air prison with millions of people to a large scale can't or fear leaving because of history. Whereas I don't believe it's a complex issue, it is an emotionally sensitive issue, and if you really want to make sure that everybody is coming out of this as safe and, and have it in respect as possible, it's important to give the proper context without 
being overwhelmed by the media content you see. How would you solve, like, what, what if you heard the President of the United States, what would you do? Uh, in my own time, I was like, I, I kind of just wanted to analyze what I think are the different directions this, this situation has the capacity to evolve once you accept, I would argue, like, the facts of it and understanding of where both sides are at. And I think, sadly, a lot of the, a lot of the ways it could go are a mass ethnic cleansing or genocide on one way or the other. And I say one way or the other because I think if Israel continues to act in such a with such a disregard for human life, they will face their own international repercussions from an international involvement, whether that be like another uh, another regional war of uh, Arab or Muslim states attacking, uh, for like more political reasons, just doesn't want to see another American proxy state in the Middle East. And I think I think continuous con the continuous wanton violence that has been seen perpetuates the possibility of that happening as well as further genocide happening against the Palestinian people. I think one one thing that is going to be very difficult for people who are not familiar with the Palestinian point of view is the necessity for reconciliation. If you really care about Palestinian lives and, and the interests of Palestinian people, I think it needs to come from a rec recognition of the their, uh, their history and the violence they've been subjected to and the displacement of land, loss of family, and the cruelty that they've faced. Because until you recognize that, these people will always be displaced from their land and always be suffering from the violence put against them. I think what you have to reasonably do is uh, kind of accept that there will be some form of uh, Israeli state. And I think that Israeli state needs to have its borders reduced dramatically compared to what it is today, removing itself from most, uh, if not all, of southern Israel. Uh, as well as a lot of northern Israel, uh, but people will always have that hatred in them, even if you even if you concede most of the land. And it, I think with this rec reconciliation and recon recognition of the pain, there will be a decrease in Islamic radicalism. And uh, given that Hamas will lose a lot of support, 70% of people disapproved or highly disapproved of uh, Hamas. They just want safety and peace. I think that allowing Palestinians the right to return would also be great. I think that, like you said, a concession um, on the Israeli government side of like, yes, this was very wrong and we're going to help. Uh, reparations is typically what we call this. Repair the relationships. But because of the amount of destruction that has happened, um, the amount of settlements that have increased, right? Like the all these different factors are going to hinder drastically the, the amending relationship. That's very disheartening because I feel like the grave has been dug so deep, it's gonna be painful and very hard to climb up out of it. But I think that's 100% necessary. I don't know, I hope one day, uh, maybe it'll be past our time, uh, but I hope one, like, one day we all can collectively agree that like, you know, secular states are probably the way to go, <laughs> um, especially in this case, and that trying to live cohesively is not a bad thing. Um, but I wanted to say, you know, throughout all of this, my soul is weeping for civilians, my soul is weeping for Gazans, for innocent lives, because I just know that, like, being a third-party observer, you know, via Instagram and following journalists who are in Gaza, um, and seeing, like, dead children being carried out of rubble, body parts and limbs and blood and destruction, um, and, uh, sorry and you know act like like this is normal or that this is okay and it's it's definitely not um and you know the other day i was really going through it because i was just sitting here and i was working on this and i was just like you know i'm just i'm very fearful to watch the complete and utter eradication of the people who are in gaza right now and what implications that has uh, for the future um and it's just very terrifying when 
we see our own elected officials when we see the extent of American tax dollars and revenue perpetuating this violence. You know, I am trying to do what I can within the means that I can to change that, but it's hard. Like, it's hard when you think about the magnitude of economic influence um, in, in the form of lobbying organizations and uh, the role that they have played within our, our governmental institutions. And um, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's dreary sometimes to think about. Yeah, it's, it, it's so sad to see, particularly in this case, our government just kind of ignore the, citizen, the citizenry. And I think people like Joe Biden are willing to excuse the atrocities in favor of continuing American global dominance. I genuinely hate the concept of that. But I wanted to kind of end by saying, you know, we are not the first people to talk about this. I know for sure we won't be the last. It's impossible to cover the entirety of this in one sitting. Like, I know for a fact we didn't even go over um, some of the more critical points in history. And I would have loved to, you know, talk about, like, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, talk more about the Oslo process, um, the first uprising, you know, peace revolutionaries, and all of the other historical points in time. You know, did you want to speak to any other thing? Like, like what it, like, uh, within our conversation, within the context of what we've talked about, you know, is there anything that I left out that you, that you want to speak on? I've noticed a sharp decline in, well, first of all, there's a sharp difference in the support for Israel amongst Jewish people above the age of 35 and younger than 35. The amount of people who say they um, support in Israel unconditionally uh, is like three times higher for people who are older than 35 than it is to be younger. I want to pay, I want to comment on that too. I so first of all, I always get surprised when I meet people our age who hold you know traditional uh, conservative opinions, just because I feel like sometimes I I think that we're all radical in thought, not radical in thought, but like when people aren't super critical of the government in a productive manner. I always get surprised, you know, with people our age because I feel like everyone in my circle, which again, you know, we're, we're friends with people who we agree with, who hold our, you know, moral values and things like that. Um, so when you lack that that criticism, that's a like red flag for me. Like I'm like, oh, okay, what? <laughs> Some of the people, it's been a little bit more surprising that they are so willing. Like the people in my family, particularly, have not been super hostile, but it's been more surprising. Like people who are otherwise like very liberal are all of a sudden sharing like Prager University, like consider the source. Like I would not think that anything coming out of PragerU is factual, even if it is. I just have such a bias against PragerU because I understand what their agenda is. They're directly funded by like Christian evangelical super PACs. Yeah, and it's like, um, oh, <laughs> like this is what, like this is what we want to push. Yeah. But yeah, do you have any final thoughts, anything like that? I mean, I know I want to say before you say anything, I genuinely have appreciated this conversation so much. I feel as though I haven't had the ability to like sit down in depth, concisely go over all the information that I have learned. And I probably sound stupid in some instances and I'm willing to you know accept responsibility for that because ignorance is you know my fault um, sometimes. But I've really enjoyed talking with you even though the, the subject matter is pretty hearty and like I've appreciated like your thoughtfulness and your depth of knowledge. 
Straight up, thank you for having me. So I really appreciate it. It's been really nice to talk to you and catch up. I've just been admiring the work you do at Purdue through uh, like social media largely. I think it's very impressive that you've been able to have so much success. And I think it's fantastic that you run this podcast and I appreciate you considering me like a, a source for topics like this. With that being said, I want to thank you all for listening. I really hope you go forward taking what we've said in, 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 in a certain light. But thank you for your time and we'll catch you later.